Let me invite you to find your Bibles, open up to the 10th chapter of Acts this morning. We are kind of soaking in this theme of mission throughout our study of Acts, and we started back in the late spring and on through this summer. Today, I want to think about where conversion and mission sort of converge, how those things are, are related. And I think all of us, you know, hope for, desire to see, to witness conversion happening through the mission of the church. We, we want to see people from, from the outside come in and, and begin to know who God is and, and begin to follow Jesus together with us. That's typically what we think of when we imagine conversion. But we're not always, I think, prepared for what happens when God begins to answer that prayer and that desire and and the people that God might send our way. The biographer Walter Hooper has written many things about the life of C.S. Lewis. And he, uh, in many of his books, enjoys recounting an anecdote from a time when Bob Jones, who was a a famed American preacher, sort of evangelist, uh, a prominent leader of the fundamentalist movement in in the U.S., traveled to England shortly after World War II, and he paid C.S. Lewis a visit. Lewis, of course, was only uh, several years before that converted to Christianity from uh, a kind of agnostic atheism, and he was developing a reputation as a Christian apologist. So Jones wanted to meet with him and, and sort of see what this guy was all about. But But Jones had trouble making sense of of what he perceived in Lewis. On the one hand, he he could see that this was a man deeply changed by the person of Jesus, a a man of deep faith. But Lewis didn't fall sort of neatly into the categories of, of American fundamentalism or evangelicalism more broadly. And so there was this tension, and and according to sort of an anecdote or a story that was told later, following this meeting, Jones quipped to one of his friends about Lewis, well, the man drinks and the man smokes, but I do think that man may be a Christian. (laughs) That's an interesting assessment, right? Trying to understand what God was up to. What do we do when conversion, the work of God's Spirit, doesn't fit our categories? What do we do when God begins to draw people to himself that that we are not particularly sure what to do with? This morning I, I want to encourage us to think about conversion again, not just as those who are outside the church coming in. But I want us to think about whether there is a kind of conversion, a place for the conversion of of the people who are already in the church. A conversion that enables us to welcome those God is pursuing and and bringing in to his body. Today we are looking at Acts 10, and we'll be making a kind of journey through that chapter. There are several households we'll visit and locations And and each stop along the way, I think we get to witness a kind of conversion taking place. Different kinds of conversion. The question I want us to keep in mind is, are are we prepared to welcome the conversion, 
the transforming work of God's Spirit when it comes to us and when, when it requires a change on our part. So if you turn with me to, to Acts chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that your word would have power to enter our minds and imaginations and hearts and lives, not just to be heard uh, as words, but as living truth. A truth, that, a truth that was located at a time and place in history, but continues to want to be located in this time and place and among your people today. Lord, would my words as I preach this passage, may the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This is Acts, starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at the angel in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. This is the the first scene in the 10th chapter of Acts. And I think it gives us our first glimpse of conversion. Conversion as it relates to this man named Cornelius. And and from what Luke tells us, we know that Cornelius is a Roman centurion, which means he's a Gentile. But he has been stationed in in Palestine, in, in the Holy Land, for some time. And has come to admire, come to, to take an interest in the God of Israel. Luke tells us that he is a man who prays regularly. A man who, who is loving uh, his neighbors and serving the community around him. And he's, he's keen to be part, keen to be an ally to the Jewish community that he lives among as a foreigner. What's kind of in the background and not stated here, though, is that for a man like Cornelius, there would be at least one major obstacle to becoming a Jew, to to fully converting to Judaism. And that, of course, was the right of circumcision. And I think we can all appreciate why that would be a difficult hurdle for conversion. Cornelius, then, is is a man who is worshiping God. He's praying. He desires to know more of who God is. But there's there's some hesitancy, perhaps that not just circumcision, but also sort of the fact that he would would be leaving behind his own ethnicity and cultural identity if he were, were to fully enter into the people of God. So Cornelius prays, he serves, he worships, sort of from this place on on the fringes, on the borders of that community. 
But we're told that as this has been going on for some time, one day at three in the afternoon, Cornelius is praying. And this was a time when, when all of, of the Jewish world would gather to pray on a daily basis. It was the time of the evening sacrifice at the temple. And if you were in Jerusalem, you might gather in the temple courtyards. If you lived further out, you would likely gather in your home to pray at that hour. At that time, one of these times of prayer in the afternoon, we're told that an angel appears to Cornelius in a vision. And in verse 4, this is what the angel says. Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, a memorial offering, that's sort of technical language that refers to a specific kind of sacrifice or offering that could be made at the temple. You can read about them in, in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and other places. What's unusual here, though, is that for a man like Cornelius... This kind of sacrifice or offering is impossible to make because he is an uncircumcised Gentile. He cannot go into the, the temple court to offer sacrifices. He has no access to the priesthood. Right? In this way, he has been shut out of that part of the community. Now, for, for most of us in, in 21st century kind of American Christianity, we, we might sort of struggle to relate to this idea of, of being excluded from worship, of, of some being welcome and others being unwelcome in, in certain places or parts of worship. Right? We, we have this sort of deeply democratic idea around worship. Even though we, we may feel or sense that all are welcome to come and worship in our churches, though, it would probably be helpful for us to reflect as the church, as the Christian people throughout the centuries, that we have not always done such a great job of, of welcoming or breaking down those kind of barriers. Right? The church has, has struggled with a long history of, of anti-Semitism or exclusion on the base of race or gender or status or, or all sorts of other things in our history. And even though our, our church doors are open this morning to anyone who would walk in, I would, I would deeply uh, imagine there are those in our community today that would be anxious, that would be fearful of, of stepping into place of worship on a Sunday morning. Not because they're, they're circumcised or uncircumcised, but because of, of a number, a dozen or, or more other issues that divide us and that separate and that cause people in our communities to wonder whether they would in fact be welcomed if they came to pray or to worship in a place like this. We wrestle with these barriers in the church, in the family of God. But look at what happens here in this passage. Because Cornelius cannot go to worship God in the temple based on his, his ethnic and cultural identity, God chooses to send an angel to Cornelius. And the angel says, Cornelius, your prayers, your offerings, I have chosen to take them past the, the temple courts. Past the priesthood, past even you know, the inner sanctum of, of, of that place in Jerusalem. Instead, I have chosen to bring your prayers and your worship into my presence. 
right? It is a memorial offering to me. It's a pure and pleasing aroma. The God of Israel has communicated to Cornelius that he has welcomed his worship. And I think there's some anticipation here. Right? Cornelius is, is beginning the steps toward conversion, a full participation in the life of God's people. And there's, there's this sense that if God has chosen to accept the prayers of Cornelius, could it then be possible that God is welcoming Cornelius himself as a worshiper, the whole of his life? Is it possible that an unclean Gentile like Cornelius might be welcome in the household, in the worshiping place of God? Again, I think there's, there's a note, an element of foreshadowing here. Because in the chapters to come, in the next two-thirds of the book of Acts, we're going to see all sorts of people like Cornelius. Foreigners, Gentiles, slaves, pouring into the family and the household of God. There's a conversion that is underway. But in order for that conversion to, to happen and to be sort of prepared for we find that the Holy Spirit is also pursuing another kind of conversion that needs to take place first. And for that, we need to go about 30 miles away to the town of Joppa. Look with me, starting in verse 9 here. We're, we're told at the end of the last scene that Cornelius, after having this vision, sends servants from his house uh, to find this man named Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Verse 9, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching Joppa, Peter, this is the, the apostle Peter, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And then down in verse 23 it says, Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along with him. So we have sort of three scenes in chapter 10. We've looked at the first scene. This is the second scene. 
And here, I think we get to witness a kind of conversion happening, not with Cornelius and the Gentiles, but happening in Peter, the apostle himself. Luke tells us back in chapter 9 that Simon Peter had traveled to sort of the western coastal area of, of Israel. He was doing ministry in, in the towns there. And he has come to stay in the household of another man named Simon who happens to be a tanner. That doesn't mean he worked really hard at getting a great suntan outside. right? He was a tanner, meaning he worked with the, the dead carcasses of animals, turning them into to leather goods. That was a challenging, a kind of compromising occupation for a Jewish man because working and, and touching dead animals as, as part of his everyday work and existence meant that he and his family and his household would be basically forever unclean. Right? They too would, would have trouble traveling to Jerusalem to worship unless they undertook a series of, of cleansing um, rituals to make themselves clean. So Peter has found himself staying in the house of this man, which means Peter then, by extension, would also be struggling to, to maintain his, his cleanness according to Jewish law. We're told that as he's staying there one day around lunchtime, around noon, he goes up onto the roof of this home to pray. And perhaps Peter is wrestling with, you know, what, what God and the Holy Spirit is doing in the Jewish community there in Joppa. New things are happening. Perhaps he's wrestling with his own anxieties or uncertainties about the fact that he's in this unclean place all the time. Whatever it is, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. And as he prays, God sends to him a vision now. And in the vision, there is a, a large blanket or sheet full of animals both clean and unclean animals. And, and the troubling part to Peter is that they're all mixed up together, right? They're all touching each other in this vision. There's no separation as, as there should be according to Jewish law. And then to make matters worse, there's this, this voice in the, the background of this vision saying, Peter, get up and eat these animals, clean and unclean animals together. And we're told that, that Peter tries to shut out the vision. He pushes it away. But the vision comes back a second time. And he pushes it away. And the vision comes back a third time. And with each, with, with each reoccurrence, there is a, a voice, again, that speaks at the end of this vision. And it's a voice of rebuke. A voice of challenge to Peter. And the voice says this. Do not call anything impure, that God has made clean. That voice is directly challenging the, the ideas, the assumptions, the prejudices, the experiences Peter has had his, his entire life up until now. Verses 17 through 20, Peter then uh, awakes from this vision, and he's wrestling with what to make of it. What does this all mean when suddenly, at, at this, that very moment, there are three strangers that he sees appear at the, the gate, at the front door of the home where he's staying. And he can probably tell just by looking that there are three Gentiles at, at the door there. And as he sees them, that same voice from the vision, 
Right now he's no longer in the vision. He's, he's awake. He's, he's sort of in reality. He hears that voice, which he now recognizes is the voice of God's Spirit, telling him, go with these men. Right? Make no distinction. Make no hesitation to go with them and be part of what I'm doing among them. And so we're told there at the end of this scene that Peter, right, the apostolic cornerstone of this emerging Christian church, he finds himself living in the household of an unclean Jewish man. He's now hosting three unclean Gentile men around the table that evening. And he's preparing to set out on a road trip with them. Right? The, the Holy Spirit has made things really uncomfortable, really messy for Peter here. But I think this, is, this again, is, is a kind of conversion that is underway, that God is pushing forward toward. To, to break down the distinctions between what we call unclean and what God calls clean or acceptable or pure, what he has made clean. I think when we think about our own mission as the church of God, we, we probably, at least I do, I, I imagine or, or think about, you know, as we reach out, my, my hope is that there will be more people pretty much like me that would decide to follow Jesus, right? People that I like, people that I admire, people that I enjoy being in the company of. And I guess it's not wrong to, to hope for that or desire that. But what I see more often in the New Testament is, is the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, going in mission and beginning to, to cultivate and, and to draw and, and to create desire in the people that he desires to bring in to the church. And often there's a pretty good chance that those that he has called clean, I'm not yet comfortable with. Often those that God is, is drawing to himself still have a lot of mess, a lot of categories that, that wouldn't, wouldn't shake out for me. They might believe different things or, or be in support of different things that I'm not yet ready to enter into, into relationship with. And I think that's why this section of Acts, chapter 10 and then chapter 11 next week, speak not just about the conversion of the Gentiles into the church, but, but they speak about the need for the Spirit to convert the church itself, to convert our hearts, to break up the, the hard ground in our spirits. Because to welcome the mission of God, right, to truly welcome that, is, is to welcome God to convert us, right, to make us uncomfortable, to stretch us and to bring us into relationships that are, are beyond our boundaries. Look with me at, at the third scene here. As God is working in the life of Cornelius, God's working in the life of Peter, now he's going to bring these things together. Verse 24. The following day, Peter arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. 
While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or even visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then there is this section where Cornelius explains that that they are waiting for him to share all that that God has given Peter to speak, the the message God would speak through him. Then in 34 it says, Then Peter, at this invitation, began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and who does what is right. And he goes on to to explain the life and ministry of Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection and the, the power of these things. And in verse 43 he says, And all the prophets testify about Jesus, that everyone, without distinction, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was speaking these words, The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. For they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Again, we get the third scene now, finally. And I feel like so many of these uh, narratives, so many of these passages in Acts are kind of like watching God play a game of chess. God's lining up all the pieces, all the people, all the places, all these different communities. Through the power of his his spirit, he's directing them and and bringing them into just the right place. And then out of nowhere, there's there's this unexpected surprise, masterful move. Whereby the the mission of God is, is advanced in a new way. So far, we've seen God send an angel to Cornelius... And then Cornelius sends his servants to go visit Peter. And then Peter goes to the the Christians in Joppa and says, come with me. And they all travel back to to Caesarea, to Cornelius' home. So that by verse 27 here, we have this, this whole crowd, this whole crazy group of people. All these mixed up sort of ethnicities and backgrounds stuck together in the same living room. And you can, you can sense the, the sort of dramatic tension building here. Luke, Luke's helping us anticipate what's about to happen. Now keep in mind that for Peter and for his friends that have come with him, this is probably the very first time they've ever entered, ever stepped foot into a Gentile home. And he says that, that to do so was to break the law of their people. Right? It was to make them unclean. It was, it was to go against the teaching of the, the rabbis. 
But in verse 28, he says, he has done so because God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Right? He's been reflecting on this vision. And he now knows that, that, that it, it applies to these men, these, these families, this community of Gentiles in Caesarea that have invited him to come. But Peter arrives, he's obedient, he's faithful, but he doesn't really even know why he's there yet. He says, why then did you send for me? What's this all about? And then Cornelius says, we, we want you to tell us everything the Lord has commanded you. And so in verses 34 through 43, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ gets to take center stage. And Peter, I, I think this is, this is like a moment, a fresh revelation. The Spirit is converting and working and speaking through Peter himself. Not just to, to, to share the, the, the story of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but to understand that it's for these people he's speaking to, for the Gentiles, for the nations. Right, standing kind of elbow to elbow, crowded in next to all of Cornelius' aunts and uncles and cousins and neighbors. There in that living room, Peter preaches about how expansive, about how inclusive the mission of Jesus desires to be. He says God is now drawing men and women from every nation. Anyone who has faith in the name of Jesus is invited to come. And then in verse 44, right, this, is, this is the climax of this whole chapter, right? It says, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. And as the Spirit is poured out, right, we know now without any uncertainty that, that the conversion of Cornelius' household has, has fully taken place. Right? The Spirit shows up in this really concrete and tangible and spectacular way so that, that we would know, so that Peter would know that these outsiders, these foreigners, are now members of the family, the people of God. Right? God has demonstrated the initiative. And he's bringing the rest of his people along with him. And so as we keep reading the book of Acts, we start to see that that God will bring Jew and Gentile. God will bring male and female. God will bring slave and citizen and people from every sort of walk of life in the greater Roman world to be participants in this new reality. Right? To, to be part of the living body of Jesus Christ. And because that's going to happen... There's one more conversion that has to take place, right? We've seen Cornelius and his household come to faith. We've seen Peter be, be transformed by the, the vision and work of the Spirit. And now we get to see the conversion of the church itself, the, the greater body. It's no accident that, that the church, many members of the church in Joppa, come with Peter as witnesses. Right? God has arranged for them to be present at this moment. So that they could see with their own eyes, right, the Spirit speaking. The Spirit bringing praise through the lips of their Gentile brothers and sisters. Even uncircumcised, even yet unbaptized foreigners. And it says they're, they're astonished, right? They don't know what 
to make of this. But it's not really up to them, right? God's already poured out his spirit. And so Peter says, it's time for us to get ready for baptizing. Right? Who, who could stand in the way? Who's going to interfere if God has poured out his spirit on them as he has on us? Then surely we need to, to offer the waters of baptism. To mark them as, as those who are entering this new reality, this new body. And so the church is, is being filled with this conversion power of the Spirit. I think that the last question I want to leave us with this morning is sort of where we started. We long to be people in mission. We long to figure out how the church of Jesus Christ in this time, in this place, in this moment has the ability to, to speak into the lives of so many who are, are far from the church. But I want us to ask, well, in order for that to take place, what kind of conversion do we need to welcome in us, in the church? How does our, our vision of how God works, how he's in mission, need to change? How do we make space within our church, within our living rooms, within our families and extended families, right, to, to welcome those that the Holy Spirit is, is initiating. Because I know he is, right? If he, could, if he could speak to an Ethiopian eunuch, if he could speak to Cornelius, he is speaking to people today that, that haven't ever come through the doors of a church, but want to, hunger to know what it means to, to be made in the image of God and to worship the God who made them waiting for, for the saving and redeeming power of Jesus. Right? Are we ready to welcome the conversion that needs to happen in us so that, so that those conversions can, can come together with it? I want us to carry that, that question, that challenge with us this morning as we come to the Lord's table. Because not only is, is that a, an individual uh, time where we commune and fellowship with the Spirit of God, but it's but it's a time where the whole of God's people are gathered together and, and receive this gift of life.